102.5 FM, KXSFLP, San Francisco, and KXSF.FM. Greetings and good day. This is Drums in Front on KXSF Radio, episode number 143. Today's show will be a, a little bit atypical because it will have uh, two parts, music and an interview. The music will be uh, basically psychedelic punk, punk before punk, among other things. And then I will play an interview that I did a couple of days ago to Glenn Matlock, the legendary bassist of uh, the Sex Pistols, and uh, it will be around an hour. I will start right now the show with a band that was labeled as a super punk, uh, a punk supergroup, uh, and the name The Wild Rats. Yeah. 
drums in front on KXSF radio here. I started this last set with uh, Wild Rats. That band was uh, called a super group, a, a punk super group, because it had Ron Ashton from the Stooges, um, Thurston Moore and Steve Shealy from Sonic Youth, Mike Watt from the Minutemen and later playing on the Stooges, Mark Arm from Madhani, among other people. World of Hurt, the name of a song from an LP called Wild Rats. After that, The Jam, the British uh, band from the 70s. Um, and they were making a, a cover of uh, a Beatles song, a psychedelic Beatles song called Rain. This appeared on Sound Effects, their f uh, The Jam's fifth LP um, in 1980. And I ended the set with Dim Stars. This was another quote-unquote super group that had um, Richard Hale, you know, this proto-punk musician from New York from the 70s that played with uh, Robert Quine. And on Dim Stars, uh, they both play here with also uh, some people from Sonic Youth. This is from the 90s, from an EP called Dim Stars from 1992. Today I am playing uh, psychedelic punk, uh, some punk bands playing, um, um, making uh, versions or, or covers of psychedelic songs. And on the second hour of the show, I will play uh, an, an interview that I made to um, Glenn Matlock from the Sex Pistols. Now I will play something from Canada from the 70s, the band Simply Saucer.
California, like all our Western neighbors, is in the grips of a historic drought and the signs are everywhere. From worsening wildfires to the increasing appearance of once shy wildlife roaming urban areas. While much of this is out of our control, there is something we can all do. Conserve water and minimize water waste. Make water conservation a way of life. Learn more by going to saveourwater.com. This message brought to you by the folks at KXSF Acts. Oh, no.
number four songs in this last set. I started it with Simply Saucer from Canada. This was a proto-punk psychedelic uh, band that uh, you could uh, hear some Hawkwind, uh, early Pink Floyd and Stooges in their sound. Mole Machine, the name of a track. This was uh, released on an LP called Cyborgs Revisited that included uh, recordings from 1974 and 1975. After that, Crime, a very early punk from punk band from San Francisco. Some of their members ended up playing in Flipper, another band from that era. Hotwire My Heart, the name of a track. This came out as a single in 1976. The side B was a song called Baby You Are So Repulsive. And this song, Hotwire My Heart, was covered by Sonic Youth in the 90s. After Crime, it was Jola Tengo, a trio from New Jersey from the 90s, playing a, a classic song, A House Is Not A Motel, that was originally from 1967 by the band Love. And Jola Tengo released it in 1986 on an LP called Ride the Tiger. And I ended the set with Jack Ruby, this was a 70s uh, proto-punk band from New York with the song Hit and Run. This was released on an LP uh, under the same name, Hit and Run, in, the two th in 2014. Today I am playing psychedelic punk, some proto-punk uh, music, and on the second hour of the show, I will play an interview that I did to Glenn Matlock from the Sex Pistols, who is going to play on the 24th in San Francisco at the uh, Great American Music Hall. Now hall. Now I will play something from Colin Newman, the singer and songwriter of um, Wire. There's a fog upon LA And my friends have lost their way
Hi, KXSF listeners. This is The Creep, host of Creeping Death Radio Show. One hour of heavy metal every other Thursday from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. on KXSF 102.5 FM, San Francisco, spanning all genres of the heavy metal spectrum. Tune in, turn it up to 10, and get to banging. And remember, if it ain't heavy, it ain't Creeping Death.
That was Neu from Germany from the 70s. Klaus Dinger and Michael Rother, Hero, the name of the track from Neu 75 from that same year. This track has been uh, considered a proto-punk song and uh, I agree with that. Before that, 13th Floor Elevators from Austin, Texas from the 60s, playing the song Reverberation from the psychedelic sounds of 13 of the 13th Floor Elevators that was released in 1966. And I started the set with Colin Newman. This is a British musician that was a vocalist and songwriter of the band Wire, an early British punk band. And the song that you heard is called Blue Jay Way, that is uh, one of the most psychedelic songs from the Beatles, sung by um, George Harrison. And this was out uh, on 1982 by Colin Newman, of course, the original one is from the 60s, from his third LP called Not Two. This is Drums in Front on KXSF Radio. Today I'm playing Psychedelic Punk, Punk Before Punk. On the second hour of the show I will play a, uh, an interview that I did to uh, Glenn Matlock, who is going to play on the 24th at uh, January 24th at the Great American Music Hall. What's coming next is Stranglers.
It takes a village to keep independent radio alive and well in San Francisco. That's why KXSF is looking for business underwriters to support our station. For a monthly or annual donation, you'll get rotating thank you spots heard on air 24-7 and a prime spot with website link on the KXSF.FM homepage. Support the local arts community and get the word out about your business. Go online now to kxsf.fm slash underwriting.
was the band Chrome from San Francisco. These guys started playing in the mid-70s, a mix of industrial rock with psychedelia and punk. Ice in the Center, the name of a track from Red Exposure that was out in 1980. Before that, Husker Du. This was a trio from Minnesota that started playing in the late 70s. And the song you heard is Eight Miles High. They were covering the bird song. Um, in this song, the birds were trying to play jazz, as they said, influenced by uh, John Coltrane. This was out as a single in 1984. I'm talking about the Husker Du version, of course. Before that, X... Um, This is a band from California. They, I think they are still active. And the song that you heard is The Crystal Ship. They were covering uh, The Doors. Um, this song appeared in the originally in The Doors' first record from 1967. And X um, were featured on the soundtrack of the X-Files movie called The X-Files Album. And I believe this is from uh, the early 80s. I started the set with the Stranglers uh, from the UK with the song 96 Tears. They were covering one of the songs from Question Mark and the Mysterians. And it, and it appeared on a Stranglers record called 10 from 1990. This is... Drums in front on KXSF Radio, 
102.5 on the FM and KXSF.FM on the internet. I will play one spot now and immediately we'll be back with uh, Glenn Matlock's interview. AKXSF listeners, this is DJ Sara Marinelli, host of Italian Frequency. Do you know that San Francisco speaks Italian? Tune in every other Monday from 2 to 4 p.m. for a show of Italian music and culture. Lots of styles and genres with old and new Italian music. It's wonderful, it's wonderful, good luck my baby, it's wonderful. If you've ever been curious about what's up on the Italian scene, tune in for Italian Frequency every other Monday from 2 to 4 p.m. on KXSF 102.5 FM, San Francisco. As I announced before, I will play now the interview that I did to Glenn Matlock from the Sex Pistols and many other bands afterwards uh, that I did a couple of days ago. He will perform on uh, January 24th at the Great American Music Hall. Here it is. Hey, Pepe, how are you doing? Hi again, uh, Glenn. Your uh, your last LP, Consequences, coming Um I, I I heard it and it's really cool. Uh, oh, thank you. And I have also been listening to your previous LPs. And, right. And I found that you have a consistent line of 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 uh, of work. You you have a, 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 con a consistent style, more or less, more or less consistent. And I wanted to ask you, um, what has changed musically uh, in you and and in your music? What has changed? Mm -hmm. Nothing. <laughs> I've always done the same old thing. Um, I, you know, I like a kind of three and a half minute pop rock song that's quite, hopefully, well um, constructed with some good playing on it. What does change is the subject matter of the, the, the songs, you know, and I think it's the songwriter's duty to reflect their take on the world around them now you know i kind of tend to do a similar kind of thing that i've always done but you know you can't walk down the street and go in a shoe shop or a cafe and hear music playing and you know music evolves and you hear things and whether it's conscious or subconsciously everything kind of seeps into your psyche and when you write a song there's probably a tiny little bit of that in it as well you know when you when you make a, a soup or a, a, a um, you know a stew there's lots of little different ingredients in and that you might not necessarily notice them but you'd notice them if they wasn't there mm -hmm. you know so that kind of feeds into my songwriting somehow I don't know there's lots of stuff been going on in the world especially in England, you have a Brexit and yeah. around the world, there's a real lurch to the right wing a little bit. It's not my cup of tea. So some of the songs I've got are to do with that. You know, it's my take on that. And I think there's a lot of wrongings about And the, the lead single from the album was called Head on a Stick. And I think a few people should be uh, made an example of. So 
I uh, um, yeah, I I I read uh, about your 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 uh, position on Brexit that ha that hasn't changed uh, then, right? No, and um, I think I've been coming more entranced about that. It's not only Brexit itself; it's enabled the most right-wing government we've ever had, and yeah. they're idiots and they're wrongs. I think they're going to come really unstuck, and I think there's going to be an election this year sometime and it's looking like they're going to get totally decimated mm -hmm. i really hope so they, they've steered the british nation who are better than that down this small dead end of, of narrow-minded bigotry that i think is wrong hopefully yeah. uh, hopefully you're right but what's what's the alternative the, the labor party right yeah and i think they're much better mm -hmm. Uh, you know, I, I I haven't got an unfailing belief in them, mm. but I think they're more honest. They're not so corrupt, and we'll see. And it's, you got to give somebody else a chance, really. I think yeah. so. I, there I, you go. I mean, they're not the most socialist party in the world that like they used to be. Um, I think I'm a socialist with a small s, mm. but I do believe in kind of. You know, looking after the underdog a little bit and giving people a hand up and not punching down. You know. You know, speaking of that, um, in my opinion, a lot of punks throughout these decades uh, misunderstood uh, some stuff, and they went for um, extreme um, individualism, and. Uh, yeah. And I think that, and in this case, I'm, I'm, we're not only talking about politics, I'm also talking about your career, because, you know, you started a, a, a political movement, not only a band, also a political movement. You you, you guys changed a lot of things uh, uh, for, for... Well, it was said that. I don't know that we necessarily set out to do that. I think we just set out to speak our minds and let the devil take the hindmost and i think we was actually so apolitical that it became political but you know punk rock it's almost a bit like the bible you know people read into it what yep. they want to get out of it you know yeah and it's a bit of a kind of a a sword of damocles hanging over our heads steve jones said you know when people say this what you've just said he says listen mate you know we just went in the in the studio and made a rock record you know and then people put all these things on on top of us i mean i don't think you ever find steve jones standing up in parliament talking about you know the rights of man or anything you just want to have a laugh and make a racket and stir things up a bit which is what we did yeah uh, but it, it did you know when the whole brexit thing was going on there was people you know i was saying my piece about it and then there'd be some old punks writing in, oh, Glenn, don't you realise that the right wing is the new left wing? Oh, I that's... you're an idiot, you know. Lydon talks about that, and uh, he says that uh, the the new um, um, rebels or the new counterculture is a right wing, and I don't know I don't know how, where, where, where he got that idea from, honestly. I think, I think he's pandering to his... What he he um, assumes is to be his his working class roots, but 
you know, John hasn't been working class for a long, long time. We disagree about that. And all these people who wrote to me who said, but I've just told you, you know, you kind of look them up a little bit, you know, on their timeline. Mm. And they were all public image fans. So I thought, well, there you go. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, of, course, of course. There's not a lot of love lost there. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I'm not here to, to have a go at John. Um, I, he's a man of his own mind, and then we're, we're different people, you know, with chalk and cheese. But, yeah, but I, I think he's wrong. He probably thinks I'm wrong, but I know I'm right that he's wrong. And I, he's I, wrong, he's right, and I'm wrong. <laughs> but I, I, I did read something somebody wrote recently, it was quite interesting, you know, to do with the elections that elections are not taxi cat taxi rides that take you from door to door. They're like a bus ride, and it's the one that's going to get you a bit nearest to what you want. You know, so for me, in England, the Labour Party is the one that's going to get nearest to where I want to go, but it's not going to take me to the door where I want to arrive right. at, you know. Um, I, I, I appreciate that you're you're outspoken about this, about politics and everything, and you know what this reminds me of? Uh, Rod Stewart was interviewed in the 80s. Right. Uh, about these kind of things. And I remember that he said, uh, you know what? I don't want to talk about politics. Let's talk about football. Right, okay. Right? And, well, and, I mean, I, I could I could talk about football, but the team I've supported since I was 10 years old are languishing at the bottom of the championship, which is the second division in England. And I don't really want to talk about football because it's I, too it's disheartening. I, I believe that Rod Stewart was what basically what he was trying to do is you know not uh, get anyone upset. He was trying to have everyone happy, right? With with that because because mostly everyone is going to be okay with football, but but not with uh, political opinions. Or, or yeah, but on the other hand, Rod Stewart has, has actually admitted that he's always been a Tory, maybe not a really right wing one, a Tory, but even him over the last year has been on the TV in England and said he's had enough of them and it's time to give Labour a chance. Even, so that, even that from... is quite a big deal thing coming from him, you know. Mm. So there you go. But regardless of his politics, he's made some fantastic records, you know. And yeah. and you know what? It's I mean, I still put out records and they kind of tick over and I get to go and play and I enjoy it and I get to play with some fantastic musicians. The, the band we got coming to San Francisco, we've got Glenn Burke on drums from Blondie, who's a great drummer and a good mate of mine. We've got Gilby Clark from Guns N' Roses and a whole bunch of other great. And Steve Fickman is a mate of mine, is a great bass player. It's like a really good rock and roll band, you know, you and me front of it. I'm really honoured to have those guys playing. But, you know, somebody like Rod Stewart, they have hit after hit after hit. And you've got to take your hat off to them because it's really hard to sustain that level of popular popularity. Mm. You know, I'm kind of happy with my place. I'd rather be doing massive big places all the time that are sold out. It's not always like that, but you work it and you keep doing, have fun playing. People seem to pick up on what I'm doing now a bit more. I wish they'd done it a bit more when I was 40 years old as opposed to 67. But there's life in the old dog yet. And we put on a good show. So, you know, come on down. Might might kind of pick something up and learn it. And my set comprises with of songs, you know, from all aspects of my career. So um yeah, yeah, some good stuff for everybody. I'll keep everybody happy. <laughs>
so you mentioned Clem Burke. Clem, Clem Burke uh, didn't. Uh, oh yes, he recorded one or two songs and on from Consequences Coming, right? Yeah, he, he played on two songs, and that happened because I, I, I was in England and I had a bunch of songs that were not quite finished, but I knew how they went musically and what you normally put the loud bits down first and then kind of fine-tune the lyrics. And I wanted to go in the studio because Earl Slick, who plays a lot of the guitar on the album, was in London. He, he lives in New York. And I said, but let's go in the studio and get it done. So we did that, and I was working on the lyrics, and then lockdown happened. Couldn't do anything for ages and ages and ages. Couldn't get the record out because nobody was doing anything. And I kind of wrote another couple of songs, which kind of um, is like the first and last song on the album. And um, because lockdown was on, I couldn't get in the studio in England. And I was talking to Clem. And in lockdown, quite a few musicians did a lot of stuff online. You know, people were making charity records and Clemmer played on stuff in Los Angeles and sent the files over and I did a bass. And then somebody else was in, well, Earl was in New York. He put some guitar on it. And then there was a guy in Germany did something. And it was a way of working. So that was kind of cool. So I said to Clemmer, look, I've got these couple of new songs. Can you get in the studio? And he could in Los Angeles when I couldn't in London. So he went and put some drums down, sent the files over, and then lockdown lifted a little bit and I could get in the studio. And I had a couple of great drum tracks from Clem. So I went in and finished them off. And that be that became um, yeah. Head on a Stick and a song called The Ship. So it was great to have Clem involved. You know, and when I do an album, I've got lots of friends who've played over the years and... You know, they come and play for nothing. You know, I promise them the world and they end up with a cappuccino and a sticky cake, if they're lucky, and they still do it anyway. But I like to feel everybody involved. Yeah. And, you know, when you get to a certain level of playing, people play, you know, they've, they've surpassed the technicality of it and they play like their personalities and they bring something to the music more times than not. And it makes it interesting. You know, I write really simple songs, hopefully. And then it's the playing that makes it more kind of musical and stuff. But on the other end, you know, people ask me to do other things and I um, I go and do that gladly. You know, I'm, I mean, I'm also playing with Clem and Blondie and we've got some more shows coming up this year and I've been quite busy with them over the last two years now. Um, and in a way... I enjoy doing the Blondie stuff and you're doing big shows, but it's got in the way a little bit of me promoting my record. But mm. what do you do? It's better to be busy than not busy at all. So, yeah, there you go. Yeah. But anyway, I'm really looking forward to come. We've been rehearsing. It sounded great. And we rock and roll a little bit. On the, on the January 24th, uh, at the Great American Music Hall, that's gonna be yeah, that's, uh, that's gonna be the concert, uh, the third, no fifth concert of this tour. Right? Fifth, fifth one, yeah. Fifth. Yeah. I, I thought it was a third. Some somewhere somewhere in the internet in the internet, they're wrong. So this is the fifth concert of 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 your tour. And you were you were mentioning Clem Burke. Uh, I think him uh, along with uh, Rat Scabies, uh, yeah. 
there are some of the best uh, dramas from that generation. Those those Great. guys those guys could could go nuts and at the same time be very tight. And and uh, what uh, and you have played with both of them, right? With Rat Scabies, yeah. right? Scabies, Scabies, you say. Thank you, thank you, Scabies with, yeah. with with Scabies and Burke. And uh, yeah. how is he playing with those guys? Well, it's, it's, it's exciting and interesting. And, I mean, I've been fortunate. I've played with some great drummers. I mean, Paul Cook's a great drummer. I've got a guy who plays with me in England called Chris Musto. He used to play with Johnny Thunders for a long while and Nika and stuff like that. I did some stuff with a version of The Faces and played with Kenny Jones. Zach Starkey I've done stuff with. You know, it's kind of... Cool. They're, they're all kind of good in different ways, but I'm going to tell you a funny story about Rat. Mm. We was having a jam or something, and he did this most fantastic drum fill, but it came in like one and a half beats after it should have done, and it all fell apart. He was only rehearsing. It all fell apart, and he said, do you know what, Glenn? He said, I hate it, but when you can't follow me, when I go wrong like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, well what what band were you playing with in this mo in that moment? We had a thing called Dead the Horse. Band? Dead Horse. Let, nothing came out. We, it was me, a guy called Gary Twin, and Derwood Andrews, who was in Generation X. He's mm. a fantastic guitarist. He's really good. He's like the punk rock Paul Kossoff. He's is good, really good player. But now lives in the desert in Palm Springs or somewhere. It's just through a tree. So yeah. It's the net of punk rockers spread far and wide, but it's kind of cool, you know. It's what I like about what I did back then. You know, I've got to play with people from before the Pistols came along, which you know, I got me going. I played with Iggy and you know, Ronnie Wood and stuff like that, and um, played with James Williamson from the Stooges on things. And then after that, I've worked with people like Primal Scream a little bit and Zach Starkey, who are the younger guys. And it's opened the door of possibility. And it's also opened the door of possibility in different countries as well. You know, I'm here in America playing with American guys. You know, it's, it's, when England comes to England, he plays with English guys. And there's no, it, it, it breaks down barriers. And that's, I think that's a good thing. If you run a small business and want to help support San Francisco music and the culture scene, please consider becoming an underwriter. The cost is minimal, but the benefits keeps the arts alive in San Francisco. Reach out now by emailing info at kxsf.fm. We're looking forward to working with you. KXSF 102.5 FM, San Francisco. Drums in front on KXSF Radio here. I am playing the interview that I did to Glenn Matlock from the Sex Pistols a couple of days ago. He will be performing at the Great American Music Hall on January 24th. I will continue with the interview now. Uh, and um, I, what about Mick Ronson? I, I just learned that uh, he produced the Rich Kids LP that you recorded. Uh, That's right, yeah. Goes to Princess and Girls. Yeah. It's, how, how did he end up playing with me? Uh, yeah, because he ended up playing, I think he played the keyboards, right? How, how did you end up, uh, uh, how did Mick Ronson end, end up uh, producing uh, your record? And, well, and by, accident, by accident, really. We had a 
had some two managers, a guy called Jerry Hempstead and a guy called Pete Wormsley. And Pete Wormsley had been a tour manager. And they had an office in Maribone in London. And the phone rang one day. Everybody had gone up. There was nobody in the office, me. So I picked up the phone. And this voice said, um, is Pete there, please? And Mick Ronson had um, quite a thick northern accent. He's from Hull. You know, he talked like that. Oh, it's Peter there. And I said, um, no. I said, do you want to leave a message? And he said, yeah, can you, can you tell him Michael called? I went, Michael? I said, it's not Mick Ronson, is it? And he said, yeah. Right, and he knew Peter Wormsley because Peter Wormsley had third, was a tour manager with him. And he said, who's that? And I said, it's Glenn. And Mick Ronson went, it's not Glenn Matlock, is it? <laughs> and I said, well, how do you know who I am? And he said, well, Peter's told me about you. And I went, oh, okay. I said, you know what? We're looking for a, a, a record producer. Would you be interested? And he said, yeah. I said, well, do you know what? We're rehearsing tomorrow. Why don't you come down and bring your guitar? And he did. And he came down. And he got up and we did a couple of numbers. And then we went to the pub and got really drunk and had a laugh. <laughs> it was cool. And he was there... It, it was like lucky. You don't get what you don't ask for. I think he needed a, a kind of gig to do something. He wanted to kind of get involved in the punk thing a little bit because the whole Bowie thing had gone wrong for him by them. And um, yeah, it was great. And do you know what? I'm, he, I met his family for an hour. I'm still friends with his family all, all these years later. He he also produced um, Lou, Reed, uh, Lou Reed's uh, Transformer, right? Yeah. But not only that, he played piano on it and he yeah. played recorder on it. Yeah. You know, there's that song, New York, just a New York telephone conversation. There. And there's, I think it's that one, and he's playing recorder on it. And he was um, a grade eight concert recorderist. He, he, when he was a kid, he'd done recorder recitals. You know, a recorder? Uh, no. It's like a. It's like a flute, but you don't yeah. play it that way. You play it that way. It's what you learn at school. We call it a recorder. With a, with, a, with 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 the um, keys. No, with holes in it. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 And and he did all the strings. You know, he arranged all the strings on um, um, perfect day and stuff. I mean, a vast, vast, vast talent. But he could rock and roll as well. Yeah, no, he was he was great. He was fantastic. And uh, I wanted to ask you a couple of questions regarding the punk uh, early days. Um, so we, we, we all know uh, about some of the influences of, of uh, for, for people from your generation. Uh, uh, we're talking about the Stooges. We're talking about other bands, maybe the Ramones, even though the Ramones. I believe that when the Ramones' first album uh, came out, you guys were already playing with the Pistols. So, I, well, I... see what happened was when those we'd heard about some of these bands from New York, but nobody had made any records. Oh. So we was aware of what they was trying to do, and we was aware of what they was trying to do because Malcolm McLaren, who was our manager, he had a clothes shop, and he would go backwards and forwards to New York to try and buy like fifties fashions, and he met those guys. He met Sylvain Sylvain, oh. and I was with Sylvain. I said, how'd you meet Malcolm? And he said, a, a clothing emporium exhibition. I said, well, what was you doing there? He said, what was I doing there? He said, I used to have a blue jean shop. I said, you did? He said, yeah. And I sold a pair of dungarees to Janis Joplin. 
This is Phil Baines away. And it, they met Malcolm and they took took him out to clubs. He was this weird guy from England. Yeah, and then he saw like early Ramones and television and the Heartbreakers and he got involved with the tail end of the New York Dolls and he told us about it, but none of those people had made any records at that mm. stage. Yeah. So, you know, and when we first heard them, we was quite taken aback at how similar they yeah. were. And I think what happened was everybody in England and everybody in New York had got fed up with listening to all the dinosaur bands all the time, you know, like Barkley, James Harvest, and Yes, mm. and Genesis. They didn't mean anything to kids. Yeah. And we wanted to do our own thing. So, you know, it was like a kind of a global village, both sides of the Atlantic. People were looking for something new. And that was a slightly, you know, what was going on in England was the real mess politically in the mid-70s. And the same thing in New York. You know, it, 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 when I first went to New York, it was like almost like, although it was New York, nothing worked. It was like all the roads were broken, you know, and if there was a hole in the road and they got some kind of system of steam that goes to the buildings, instead of fixing it, they just put a chimney over it. It was like, you know, it was, it was crazy. Okay. So, so the, the, the first Ramones record, I believe, I could be mistaken, that was out in 1975. And uh, and you guys were already playing. We night. did our first gig in 1975 at St. Martin's Art College. But but when I heard, I remember that the first time I heard the, the New York Dolls, uh, that was after I heard the Pistols, uh, I, 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 I thought, oh, this sounds so much like Steve Jones' guitar. And, uh, well, that, so is a, that is another thing, yeah. We were aware of the New York Dolls. And I actually, I, I was a big fan of a band called The Faces. Mm -hmm, right, yeah. who I got to play with, luckily, um, for a little bit. But I went to see The Faces. And, you know, when you're a kid and you bought a ticket yourself, you go and see all the support bands because you want to get your money's worth. And this band came on, and it was the New York Dolls. And it was the very original New York Dolls with their drummer, Billy Mercier, who died only a few weeks after that. So I actually saw the original New York Dolls. And I'd kind of heard of them a little bit about from Malcolm, and we had their record. And Steve really picked up on it. But the music for me that got me going, although I appreciated that and I liked the energy of it and the intention, I really liked all the bands from the 60s in England, you know, like the early Kinks and the Who and the Small Faces and the Yardbirds and the Stones. That's what got me going, really. And I think there's an element of that in the Pistol stuff, you know. But then Steve plays guitar, Guitar solos like Johnny Thunders, maybe a little bit too much like Johnny Thunders sometimes. So he, so he was influenced, right? By, by... He was, yeah. yeah. But but again, you know, when I was talking about songwriting, there's lots of different ingredients. It might sound very simple, but there's lots of ingredients in it that yeah. makes a very thick kind of simplicity. That's true. Now, you, you mentioned the dinosaur uh, bands. Uh, uh, now, the Kinks... The Stones, um, uh, bands like that, that they're not dinosaur bands. But but they they used to be in the sixties. They were very uh, rebellious, and yeah. And so by by the mid late seventies, um, were they considered dinosaur? In in, in no, in... no. I I think as far as I I was concerned, they might have kind of lost the plot a little bit. 
but yeah. you can't you can't take anything away from a band that recorded you really got me yeah and all day and all the night and so tired of waiting and waterloo sunset and and um i got a move stuff like that they're always there yeah you know but bands like yes and genesis you know i mean towels from the topographic ocean what the fuck is that all about you know <laughs> you know the, the, the six ways of henry the eighth well on ice what the fuck is that all about you know but on the other hand rick wakeman played piano on space liberty so you know yeah yeah, no, Ray, Ray Davis. I, I I read some kind of uh, homage. I think is the word that uh, um, Pete Townsend, uh, uh, you know, uh, put out. Uh, Pete Townsend really admires still uh, Ray Davis, and uh, I think he's England, he's England's greatest living songwriter. Oh man, he's you know? he's just fantastic, fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, okay, so influences the, the punk days, um, uh, the Stooges for sure. Actually, you guys played no fun, uh, and uh, so we could continue talking about the influences uh, for people from your, your generation in those days. But what about uh, psychedelia? For example, the Jam uh, played uh, uh, made a cover of uh, "Rain," this psychedelic Beatles song. Um, Stranglers they played "96 uh, Tears" from "Question Mark" and the Mysterians. Oh, okay, well "96 Tears," right? One of the things that was an early influence that we were hip to, there was an album came out that um, the guy from the Patti Smith group, who was the guitarist in the Patti Smith group? Not Ivan Crowell, the other guy. Lenny... Yeah, Lenny Kay. Hey, Lenny Kay, yeah. He did a compilation album called Nuggets. Yeah. And there was all these bands on it. Gosh. You know, like, I think, maybe not Question Mark and Mysterians, but the... the the strawberry long clock and the 30, 13th floor elevators and the electric prunes and um yeah, what a great name for a band the jagged edge wow what a great you know and they and the what, what's the other one the the um did nighttime by what were they called the, the strange loves or something like that yeah that album was was kind of quite um influential so that was the kind of first, and that was actually called punk. Mm. But it wasn't what we was trying to do. But then we, then we became called punk. You know, we wasn't particularly happy with being called punk, but it kind of stuck. So, and and what about uh, German bands? For example, the crowd rock was a crowd rock came at the same time the 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 progressive rock did but the germans were much more experimental much more raw uh much more um crazy in in, in some ways and well, you know one of the best gigs i ever saw possibly in 1973 there was a place in london called hammersmith palais which was a dance hall that started having bands on and one week i saw little richard and the next week i saw can mm. and they were fantastic it was one of the best gigs i've ever been to and they they didn't even have their singer at that stage. It was they were a four piece. So, um, and I'm really before, before Damo Suzuki. I think it was after. Okay, after and and you know the the guy who's the most sample drummer in the world is Jackie Leavitt. Yeah, 
right? You know, and him and Holger Kuzke, the bass player, it was fantastic. Uh, Holger Sukai, I believe, was. Yeah, it. I don't know how you pronounce it, Sukai. Yeah. That, that was cool, you know, Cam. And then they, they, I followed them a little bit. I really like their um, Thunova Babaluma album. That's one that yeah. I put on every now. It was kind of different thing. It was very, very European, you know. And I got into craft work at a really early age. You know, I like their album Radioactivity. Mm-hmm. Oh, fantastic. Nothing to do with rock and roll. It's got this whole kind of European style of songwriting that um, it's cool, you know. So, but what was what's... I was putting a few little bits and pieces together now in in. In fact, Holger Suke, however you pronounce it, mm. he taught me, he didn't deliberately tell, but I picked up from him, just the importance of when to change the octave on the bass. Mm-hmm. And this kind of gives a movement to your bass playing. Mm-hmm. That sounds like a silly little thing, but if you listen to the Anarchy in the UK, the, most people think it just goes boom, 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 boom. But I'm doing this boom, 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 boom. And I got that from Cam. Yeah. So there you go. Ah, oh, but that, that that's a very interesting thing. So so Sukai Sukai, uh, uh, is it possible to to s- summarize what what he told you about the? Uh, well, he didn't tell me anything. It was just from watching him and listening oh, to okay. him. Okay. You know, I've never met him. I'd like to meet him, but I, I don't know if he's still around, actually. No, I think uh, he died. Uh, I believe he died. I could be mistaken. Um, so we're. But back- then, see, but then other things with the crowd rock thing, you, you got you got craft work. Oh. And then that kind of fed into those fantastic four albums that um, Bowie made, you know, two yeah. with himself. Which was just before punk in Berlin, and so with Iggy Pop, you know, Lust for Life and the the Idiot, and then um, then um, Craftwork. I've got a song Trans Europe Express, where they meet Iggy Pop and David Bowie. Yeah. <laughs> so it's all kind of feeds in there, you know. Yeah, Iggy Iggy really liked uh, Noi. Right. Okay. I did. I didn't pick up on them so much, you know, but. Then there was another band called Kraut, wasn't there as well? Um, which I think was kind of tackling things head on by calling themselves Kraut, you know, Kraut Rock. Kraut. Yeah. So, you know, bands like Noi, even though they're contemporary with, with, with uh, progressive uh, bands from the UK or, or, or other places, in some ways they were the opposite. They were like super minimalistic and, and, uh, yeah. uh, and and you just mentioned uh, some influence that that Holger Sukai from Cannes had 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 in your style, but was it like uh, the influence of bands like this? Was it something that you could see in people from your generation from from those early punk days? Um, not really. You know, if I picked up on something and then told Steve about it, he'd go, well, it's not very rock and roll, is it? And he wasn't interested at all. So he'd be playing his bit and I'd be putting my little bit in and it was this match of ideas. I was talking to James Williamson mm-hmm. before and um, we was doing like a joint interview and somebody said, well, what were your influences? And he went, um, he went the Rolling Stones. And I said, ah, oh, 
But Jim, Iggy Pop, told me he was really into the doors. And he went, did he? And I said, yeah. You know, and it's those two things coming together made the Stooges sound a little bit different. If everybody had liked the same thing all the time, it would have been a bit boring, you know? Yeah, of course. In a good band, some each individual member brings something different to the soup. And, and what, know, about, what about the doors? thing I really liked, I like Tamla Motown, you know, I'm a big fan of... James Jameson's bass player, you know, who isn't? But I mean, he's, he's the king. So, yeah. And what about the Doors? Uh, uh, there were also lots of bands from George, George Generation that covered the Doors. It was like, uh, I don't know, Susie and the Band. She said, there's several bands ended up covering the Doors. Doors, doors were always cool. Yeah, mm. people liked them because they was a bit more left field, but still kind of accessible. Good songs, but had a darkness to them. You know, and then again, there's the Doors did. That that um Kurt Vile song, you know, Whiskey Bar, a mm. Moon of Alabama, it's called. So that's kind of getting involved with a German thing again, and it's, it's all sort of in there somehow, you know. Okay, okay. So uh, I'm here talking to uh, Glenn Matlock. Um, he's touring um, the U.S., California, in this moment. Well, not only California, but but he is in California now. He just he's about to start his. Uh, Uh, his uh, 2024 US tour uh, uh, and he's going to be playing songs from Consequences Coming, his last uh, uh, record, his seventh record, uh, solo record. Am I right? Um, I've never really counted. You're probably right. <laughs> I'm, First, doing some song, I'm doing some songs from that, but I'm doing songs from all aspects of my career and they all kind of fit together quite well because I'm the bloke what wrote them, but I'm not trying to force my new album down everybody's throat. I think that's um I think that's a bit um what's the word? Presumptuous, you know? Yeah. Mm. You know, it's like Clem don't tell him this, but Clem's a big Bruce Springsteen fan. And I kind of appreciate Bruce Springsteen. But the whole idea of going to a show where he plays for four hours Yeah, I think that's big-headed, you know. Yeah. I, I wouldn't expect anybody to want to see me for four hours, you know. So I'd like to keep it short and sweet-ish. Yeah, you know? yeah, gotcha. Uh, um, you once said that uh, you thought that the, pist the pistols made people question things about music and and the social significance of it. Do you think people are doing that now, questioning uh, uh, music, art, and, and its social significance? Well, there's always people who who like to talk about, talk, you know, the dialectic of talking about the whys and wherefores of things. I think the whole pistol thing, really, was a bit more kind of gut reaction. And, and in all honesty, it was four guys who wanted to have a go at doing something. That was the real bottom line, and it came out how it came out. But we were no schmoes, and we were hip to certain things. We were hanging out with Malcolm McLaren, which was probably in the mid-70s, the hippest place to be, which we didn't really realize, although soon realized. And it all kind of rubbed off, you know. We were like sponges and soaked all these ideas up that were knocking around. You know, one of the other people that knocked around with Bert, with Malcolm was Bernard Rhodes, who went on to manage the Clash. And then there's like Vivian Westwood and 
and Jamie Reed, you know, and that was part of our little gang who who lived a, a bit more than us. Then there were ideas floating around, and not many bands are, are privileged to be in that position. But we were privileged because we all put ourselves in that position because of some kind of gut reaction, a feeling that Malcolm's shop down the King's Road was the right place to be on a Saturday afternoon. Mm. Sex. So, well, it was called Let It Rock originally. It was a teddy boy shop, and then it became Sex, and then it became Sedition, and then it became World's End, and it was always on a, you know, a movable feast. Um, but yeah, we was there, and it's it's heyday. Yeah. Hello, KXSF listeners. This is The Creep, host of The Creep Show, airing every other Thursday from 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. on KXSF 102.5 FM, San Francisco. Do you have trouble deciding between donut holes or jalapeno peppers? Or maybe you just can't stop till you get enough? Then tune into The Creep Show, a music program designed for the intellectually challenged, just like me. Ever feel like you're not the sharpest knife in the drawer, or maybe not the brightest bulb in the lamp? The Creep Show is here to help. Tune in to The Creep Show every other Thursday, 7 p.m. to 8 p.m., right here on KXSF 102.5 FM, San Francisco. Guaranteed to make you smarter. Now I will continue with the interview that I did to Glenn Matlock a couple of days ago. He will perform at the Great uh, American Music Hall on January 24th. In, in 1996, you, you reunited with the Pistols. And, uh, yeah. and in a press conference, and I believe also in other places, uh, so basically uh, what hit the news is that uh, the Pistols said that... Uh, you were uh, this time or that time you were trying to uh, make money for you instead of letting other people make make money uh, uh, from you and that actually that uh, there was a statement like we are here for your money or something like that but, but john, john said that i mean he knew that we was going to be accused of yeah. making money and so he turned it around and threw it back in people's faces in fact I, I, no, I remember that. the headlines when we yeah. did the Bill Grundy show the next day and the national newspaper was Filthy Luca, you know, like Dirty Money. We actually called the tour the Filthy Luca tour. Yeah, you know, the thing is with the Pistols, like what everybody's done individually over the years, you know, with varying degrees of success, people still talk about the Sex Pistols, you know, and it comes a stage where you think, if that's what they want, just give it to them. And that's what we did. But I'm glad we did it. It, 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 it made, it mended some fences between us. Um, we, yes, we made some money. What's wrong with that? You know, of course. when we did played in London, we had 36,000 people there. When I played with the Pistols the first time around, there was probably maybe, 400 people at the biggest gig that we did, you know. It's, and for a band that had never put a record out in all that time, it was a bit of an achievement, really, you know. Yeah. And then yeah, everybody's going, oh, we're 40. Well, I was only 39, but 
you know, we were still relatively young. So it's never going to be exactly the same as the, as the first time around, but we didn't pretend it was. So we got to play our music and get paid for it. What's wrong with that? Of course, no. of course. And I, I remember that I liked those statements back then because it sounded very honest to me. And um Well, do you know what was the most honest thing? What? We did a press conference at the the Hundred Club, right? Now yeah. John had his wife there and I had my girlfriend and Paul had his wife there. And somebody said, What are you gonna do with the money? And Steve Jones went, I'm gonna spend it on prostitutes. And we were like <laughs> We looked round and he went, well, I am anyway. <laughs> and Steve is the most honest person I've ever met in the world. It, you know, most people might think something and then it goes through some filter before it comes out of their mouth. Mm. <laughs> and, and speaking of him, uh, do you think that uh, Pistol uh, was uh, basically made uh, for money? The series, I'm talking about the series. A little bit. Didn't necessarily come my way. I think Steve had written a book and he wanted to tell his story. Steve was the guy who formed the band in the first place. I thought it was important that he got to tell his story. So I backed him up on it. You know, I was a bit dis. I thought the TV series could have been a lot better than it was, to be honest. I, I think it, I think it was a bit lame. Yeah. Really. Yeah. You know. Yeah, and, and speaking of those guys, um, sometimes Lydon depicted you as uh, someone that was somewhat more conservative than the rest of the guys, or at least than him. Is is Would you agree on that? No, I disagree with that. I mm -hmm. think I was a bit, maybe a little bit quieter. I was the youngest one in the band at the time, mm -hmm. maybe a tiny little bit shyer. But um, no, I, you don't get, to be the guy, even before John was in a band, to kind of end up working in this really weird shop down the King's Road and meeting Stephen Paul and forming a band called the Sex Pistols. You don't do that if you're a bit on the straight side, you know? <laughs> yeah, you're right, you're right. And um, also, you know, now turning that into music, personally, I think that, that the Pistols lot lost a lot musically when you left. And uh, because because your bass lines were uh, were a little bit more um, uh, musical, uh, and and, uh, and 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 they added a lot of character to the songs. And uh, so when you were playing with them, did they ever tell you, "Hey, make things, keep things more simple"? It's it's not that you were like super complicated, but but you had like these really cool arrangements. And, um, yeah, a little bit, you know, but um. I used to ignore them. <laughs> you know, my yardstick with, with the bass playing pistols is like, listen to The Who, mm. right? Now, Townsend's a fantastic lead guitarist, not a fantastic rhythm guitarist, not so great on the lead, wrote some great songs, but what makes some of those early Who records is the bass playing, you know. Oh, in Whistle. Down, 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 down on the guitar, but Edmus was going boom, 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 boom. It gives it a whole different groove, you know, and that's kind of where I was coming from. Was really. he? I, I think the bass gives the 
gives the colour to a song in a three-piece band. You yeah. know, if yeah. your guitarist is a little bit limited. I love what Steve does. He's fantastic at what he does, but it's always a very simple thing done done well, and he plays with a great attitude. But, you know, he's not Mick Ronson, you know? Yeah, yeah. You know, so, some of the of the early demos uh, of, of the Pistols uh, where, where you can clearly hear the bass, your bass, of course, it's such a big difference compared to Nevermind the Bollocks. Yeah, it's a big wall of sound, you know, and Steve wanted to, I'd left by then, and it was Steve just did the root note thing. But I think if you're talking maybe about the Spunk album, which was all our demos, the reason you could hear the bass is because Dave Goodman, who was this, our sound guy, mm. he recorded and mixed it, and you know what? He was a bass player. Oh, <laughs> that helps. Yeah, you know, he kind of liked what I, I did, and it was quite handy, really. You know, how many how many songs did you uh, ended up playing the bass uh, uh, in? Um, never, oh, yeah, not a lot, but you know, Anarchy and No Fun, and I Want to Be Me and stuff. And Steve did a lot. I'd left by then, but my claim to fame is is that all those important songs I had a big hand in writing. You know, so. Mm. Yeah, of course, of course, and and when when you after you left. Um, uh, you know, there's these concerts and these these recordings, uh, and uh, uh, I mean, of course, the the the, the bass or it either it doesn't sound or it's terrible. How how did you feel? You know, when 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 you when you heard your songs uh, in such a bad performance? I I just thought I just thought it was too black and white. I think the production's great. I just think the bass is boring. Really, you know, Steve gets annoyed. He thinks that I think he can't play bass. He can play bass, but he plays bass like a guitarist. Yeah, yeah. You know, and it's funny. I was talking to Mick Jones. I did something with him in the studio, and I was playing guitar, like rhythm guitar. And he said, "The thing is, Glenn, you play guitar like a bass player." And I said, "I know." I said, "And when you play bass, you play bass like a guitar player." <laughs> <laughs> We're here with uh, um, with Glenn Matlock, and uh, he will play in San Francisco on January twenty fourth um, at uh, Great American Music Hall. Yeah. Uh, and uh, today I was listening to the Soldier. Uh, 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 oh, good it, album! Man. Oh, that's fantastic album! Man. And uh, so, and we were talking about influences a few minutes ago, and. Uh, um when with and but you Iggy was there before you guys is older than you guys and and the and you ended up playing with Iggy was Iggy's attitude more uh anarchic than 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 people from your generation um not really it's just it was just a bit different. I I think I don't know. I'd probably get annoyed with this. I I think you know because he'd worked with Bowie and he'd been touring. He had not a great deal of success then, but he was touring at quite a high higher level, more constantly. Um, you know, and he's Iggy Pop and the lead singer and that. I, I think people kind of pandered to him a little bit more and 
he kind of got away with some things that maybe he shouldn't have done. You know, if he was, mm. if you had a kid and you let them get away with everything all the time, it doesn't do them a lot of good in the long run. <laughs> yeah. And I think when I worked with him, I pulled him up a couple of times and he was like, oh, yeah. But it was, it was an interesting experience. I love working on that album. It's, it's um, I mean, these lyrics to some songs on it, uh, you know, Take Care of Me, which I co-wrote, but he wrote the lyrics and I wrote music. And there's that song, Loco Mosquito. Yeah. The lyrics on that are fantastic. You know, I got some energy that makes me jumpy and nervous, but I'm too jammed. Yeah, it's, it's kind of cool. And in fact, on that one, this, he's not credited, but Bowie makes that. And then there's a bass run I do yeah. in the middle. Bowie pushed the bass up. Great. Uh, so, and in fact, if you do the gig, I'm going to do the song Ambition, which is on that album, which Actually, is what I wrote. Actually, I was gonna. I was. Uh, uh, wait a second. Do, do you do you play a cover of uh, of uh, Iggy Pop's uh, "Ambition"? Well, I do my version of it. Yeah, which do, was do a bit more of a blues song. It should have been in the first place. But Iggy's version is interesting. But I'm pleased that he did that because Iggy rarely ever has done anybody else's lyric, and it's my lyric on that song. You know, I was gonna. So. I was gonna mention that man that, that about this girl, right? Well, it's actually about my ex-wife. He was having ah. a hard time, and I wrote a song to to kind of cheer her up a little bit. And that song was originally written for the Rich Kids' second album, but we never made the second album in him. So when I started working with Biggies, and he had to make an album, and he had a deal where he had to make an album once a year, you know, and you got to get loads of ideas all the time. And I think they wanted me to be involved to put some ideas in, which I did do, and that was one of the songs I I had and he liked it. So he did it. Mm. So it's it's your lyrics and is it well, it's my song. And and the my, music is yours? Yeah, yeah, ambition is my song. Yeah. Okay, okay, okay. It's, it's a very, very, very good song. Actually I was listening to that today. And did Iggy uh, ever ever when you were playing with him, did, did he tell you what to play or he would just let you do your own stuff? No, he let you do your, your own stuff. But, you know, if it, if when I played with him, you know, we we do. I started playing with him when he made that album, um, uh, New Values. And I played with him because the guy who played bass on the album was going to play second guitar on the tour. So they were short of a bass player. And the agent I had, John Giddings, who now does the Isle of Wight Festival and stuff, he knew that the rich kids were splitting up and he knew that Iggy needed a bass player. So he suggested me. And that's how I got, got the gig. But some of the songs were from the New Values album that we were doing to promote. Lots of Stooges songs and stuff. You know, when you play a song from somebody, you got to kind of play how it goes. Otherwise, it doesn't sound like the song, you know. So you have to learn the songs and then you kind of do your sort of slightly different version to it but yeah it's it's kind of in that sort of punk rock rock and roll idiom and it, it's not such a stretch from what i was always doing anyway really you know okay and uh and how uh and i also read this uh in this interview that you mentioned uh 
that you went partying with Bowie and and Iggy, and you ended up in the uh, in the limousines. Uh, that there was not enough space. Blah blah blah. And oh, oh yeah, it was going down Park Avenue, sitting on David Bowie's knee because it was all squeezed in. Not only the same car, but he had the same driver from the man who fell to well to earth. Uh-huh. You know, the move the car he drives around in that with the same yeah. driver. It was the same thing that we was going down. We played at a club called Hurrah, which is up near Central Park, and went down to the mud club, didn't it? All, all squeezed into his car. It's it was fun. You know, and he was there. He was he, you know, it was great meeting Bowie quite a few times, and he was there because he was good mates with Iggy and he would come to our shows. So not really a big stretch, and Bowie was always out and about doing things. In fact, I saw him maybe a year or so after that. I got invited to go and see um, Talking Heads at Radio City Musical, and I walked in, and Bowie was there, and he said, oh, hi, Glenn. And me and him were watching Talking Heads from just behind a curtain on the side of the stage, and he was singing all the words to the songs in my ear in his best David Bowie voice. I think he was showing off that he knew all the words mm. right <laughs> it was great it was what, cool. what year was that well, that must have been about 1980 by then mm. 80 81 what why did yeah. you why did you start playing with uh with iggy uh, reasons maybe not i wish i'd kept playing with him to be honest but you know, somebody made me an offer to make my own album, which I kind of wanted to do. And in fact, it was the head of Iggy's record company, a guy called Charles Leverson. Uh, I could have done both, really, but, um, you know, young and headstrong. I wish I kept playing with Iggy longer. But there you go. You just played the uh, last year in San Francisco. Well, last year I saw him when I was in Los Angeles and he played... The Palladium, where we played with the Pistols. And the show was great. And he had Chad from the Red Hot Chili Peppers on, yeah. on Drown and Slash Got Up and Duff. And they were kind of cool. And it was funny. There was a guy, and I couldn't quite see the stage. There was a keyboard player. Um, and I thought, I know that guy from somewhere. And I thought, and I'd done something with Ronnie Wood in the studio the summer before. And there was a guy there, Matt Clifford, who plays with the Stones. Uh-huh. I thought, it was just the way his hair was and the way he stood. I thought, he come out. Anyway, after the show, I was having a drink with somebody. He came out and it wasn't. I thought, what are you doing there? And he said, well, you know, well, it's just funny how things work. And that show was fantastic. And then I went back to London and we did a big show with Blondie in Crystal Palace with Iggy on the bill. And I thought it was going to be the same band, but it was a totally different band. It was still really good. It wasn't quite as good as the one in America, but yeah. it was it was only a few weeks later and it was a totally different band. Oh, there you go. They had trumpet play. Well, uh, Iggy's uh, stamina seems to be eternal. Yeah. Mm. And he was great. But I'll tell you what, when I saw him at the Palladium, in Los Angeles, he came out and did an encore and he sang Walk on the Wild Child. 
I'd never seen him do that. It was fantastic. And he meant it. When he sang it, he meant it. It was great. Really good. Yeah. He did the same thing in, in San Francisco. Yeah. It was fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Glenn, really nice talking to you. Um, Glenn uh, is, uh, is playing on the 24th in San Francisco at, at the Great American Music Hall. You should go, yeah. you should go see him. And I don't know if there's something else that you want to uh, to mention before we, we finish the interview. No, not really. It's been great talking to you. Yes, come on down. The show's going to be great. We can, the band's sounding fantastic. We've been rehearsing all this week. We've got a bit more, and then we've got shows coming up. So by the time we get to San Francisco, it's really going to be cooking. Um, as you mentioned, I've got an, an album out now called Consequences Coming, which is... You know, you can check it out on YouTube and Amazon and Spotify, and, and I'm proud of it. So, you know, and I've been involved in some good stuff over the years, and I think this is right up there with it. So check it out, ladies and gentlemen. And that was the end of the interview. I will be back in two weeks. Drums in Front happens every other Monday. Until then, bye.